0: Now, the book of 1 Corinthians, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we look today at verses 17 through 34, the subject of the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's Table, the Eucharist, known by many terms, it is an ordinance of the Church, Christ's command to us to practice. Here Paul is addressing again one of many issues that the Corinthian church has faced. He is addressing problem in their irreverence and the perversion of an ordinance that was to be made a memorial To what Christ did on the cross and we read in verse 17 of chapter 11 but in giving this instruction I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse for in the first place when you come together as a church I hear that divisions exist among you and in part I believe it For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you come, meet together. It is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for you are eating. Each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. For if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. Fill us with your spirit, illumine our minds. I pray, O Father, that your word would dwell richly within us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. A number of years ago, there was a book written entitled, The Body, by Chuck Colson. It reads this, quote, "...believers dare not come to the Lord's table except with a repentant heart." Quote, "...whoever eats this bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, as Paul puts it, "...drinks judgment to himself." That should be a sobering warning, especially when the Apostle adds that because of this offense, many have fallen ill or died. Any pastor who takes the word of God seriously should never administer communion without adequately warning partakers. Those who are unrepentant should flee the table rather than trivialize the sacred. And God does not view this sacred act lightly. Pat Novak, a pastor in a non-sacramental denomination, discovered this when he was serving as a hospital chaplain, intern just out of Boston several years ago. Pat was making his rounds one summer morning and when he was called to visit a patient admitted with an undiagnosed ailment, John, a man in his 60s, had not responded to any treatment. Medical tests showed nothing. Psychological tests were inconclusive, yet he was wasting away. He had not even been able to swallow for two weeks. The nurses tried everything and finally they called the chaplain's office. When Pat walked into the room, John was sitting limply in his bed, strung with IV tubes, staring listlessly at the wall. He was a tall, grandfatherly man, balding a little. But his shallow skin hung loosely on his face, his neck, and his arms where the weight had dropped from his frame. His eyes were hollow. Pat was terrified. He had no idea what to do. But John seemed to brighten a bit when he saw Pat's chaplain badge and invited him to sit down. As they talk, Pat sensed that God was urging to do something specific He knew he was to ask John if he wanted to take communion. Chaplain interns were not encouraged to ask this type of thing in this public hospital, but Pat did. At that, John broke down. I can't, he cried, I've sinned and can't be forgiven. Pat paused a moment, knowing that he was about to break policy again. And he told John about 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul's admonition that whoever takes communion in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. And he asked John if he wanted to confess his sin. And John nodded gratefully. To this day, Pat can't remember the particular sin John confessed, nor would he say if he did, but he recalls that it did not strike him as particularly egregious. Yet it had been draining the life From this man. John wept as he confessed, and Pat laid hands on him, hugged him. Then Pat got the second urging ask him if he wants to take communion. He did. Pat gave John a Bible and told him he would be back later. Already, John was sitting up straighter with a flicker of light in his eyes. Pat visited a few more patients, ate some lunch in the cafeteria. He wrapped an extra piece of bread in a napkin and borrowed a coffee cup from the cafeteria. He ran out to a shop a few blocks away and bought a container of grape juice. And then he returned to John's room with the elements and celebrated communion with him. Again, reciting 1 Corinthians 11. John took the bread and chewed slowly. It was the first time in weeks he had been able to eat solid food in his mouth. He took the cup and he swallowed He had been set free. Within three days, he walked out of that hospital and the nurses were so amazed, they called the newspaper, which featured the story of John and Pat appropriately in its life section. Unquote. It's known as the communion table, the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, or some call it the Eucharist. It's something that most people are familiar with either because they have been to a church maybe they've been to a funeral they've seen it at a wedding or they've seen it on television not everyone understands what it is but it is practiced by most evangelical churches if not all it's known as the ordinance of communion an ordinance of the church and it's typically taken very seriously because of the severe warning that is attached to this particular command but back in the Corinthian church They had lost the meaning. They had lost the meaning and had adopted an attitude of irreverence because of their selfishness and their own desire, the disdain for what it meant, for their own greed. What exactly does communion mean? How is it to be practiced? Paul gives us instructions here. And it caused a division in the Corinthian church. We'll look at that first. Then the meaning and the institution of it. Second, and their self-examination which they were to do and Paul commands at the end. But it caused division within the church itself. As it says, he gives this instruction, verse 17. But he doesn't praise them for in the first place, verse 18, they come together. He hears a division is existing among them and he says, in part, I believe it. Perhaps to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, he says, in part, I believe it, they had been stressing from the cliques, the division, the fractioning of the church as they were ascribing to various teachers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ, some would say. And it was so very popular to follow a particular teacher at that time. And they themselves were doing this very thing And there were divisions among them, but even more so during the time of communion, symbolic of the unity of the church. They were still divided, not because of particular followings, but because of the selfishness that they had. Most of the time, you see, when factions occur in a church, when there are divisions in a church... It's not over a biblical philosophy of ministry. It's often not over doctrine or theology. In fact, as I shared with you in seminary, I learned more churches split over the subject of musical styles than they do over doctrine. But it's often over those who are more immature, those who are more carnal. It's often over issues that may seem important at that time, but in retrospect are not critical to the life of the body. And so those, it says, who are approved may become evident among them. In other words, there are those, and the word approved there has to do with that of purification of precious metals. When it is fired... The dross comes up to the top and it is scraped off and it is put back into the fire. And when there is conflict and pressure and stress, those who are approved, those who are proven show themselves. Those who have what it is inside, that maturity It shows and it is shown, it is made apparent or evident among them. And in that type of division, there were those who were causing the division and those who were more mature who were not. And it showed among them. And we know that within any group, whether it's a fellowship group project, a short-term mission team or any type of thing, where people work together. There is going to be inevitable conflict. All it takes is one person who is discontent, one person who is a bad apple, one person who cannot work with others to cause the whole batch to be overturned sometimes. Anytime you have a group of people who work together, live together, stay together, whatever it is, it is bound to be caught up in that. There is some sin that surfaces because of conflict. And when that happens... Whatever is inside of the heart spills out and we see what is made manifest in a person's life. And here in the Corinthian church, the true character of the people was displayed. Now, in the early church, they were committed. They were committed to four particular things, as is dictated in Acts 2.42 or described in Acts 2.42. They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The apostles' teaching was the Word of God, the fellowship of the brethren, to prayer, and we know what that is, and to the breaking of bread, which is known as the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Or communion. They were committed to that. Some practiced it, I believe, every single time they met. Jude Jude, chapter, Jude, verse 12 tells us that it was also called the love feast. It was called the love feast because in New Testament times, you see, communion wasn't merely a 15-minute thing that was tacked on to the end of a worship service. It was a potluck meal. So in the Corinthian church, they brought a potluck lunch after church, after service, after their worship. And it wasn't just among the Christians that this was practiced. It was practiced among the Jews, it was practiced among the Gentiles. After a time of worship, people would generally have a meal together. And that was what was happening here. But in that time of a meal, it wasn't, it wasn't symbolic of their unity. Sharing of fellowship. For the text says, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another is drunk. The problem was that the people would come. They would bring some food for themselves. They would bring some food and they would sit down and they would begin eating. Not waiting for someone else. Not sharing with somebody who hardly had anything. They were getting drunk. There were people who were going hungry. Obviously, perhaps there was resentment, inconsiderateness, selfishness, thoughtlessness. And it shamed those who had none. It despised the church. There was one with some nice spread because they were wealthy. And there was someone who had hardly anything. And they were divided in this cliquish type of gluttony. This type of thing like some teenage cafeteria hall. And people were eating and they weren't sharing. And they didn't bother to perhaps even sit with the poor. We find that even among people today. We find that even among people today. When there's a meal and they get their food or whatever. Whom they sit with. Oftentimes they'll sit with people that they know. That they want to talk to. That they have commonality with. Or even if they're sitting with somebody they don't know, do you reach out and say, Hi, I'm so-and-so, and and find out more about them? What do you do? Gather together and selfishly commune among those whom you often see? Christians can be like that as well. They can be unwelcoming or unfriendly, cliquish. And there can be all sorts of reasons why people do what they do. It's hard for me to imagine that the Lord Jesus would ever have that type of attitude to say, you know what, what have I got in common with a Samaritan woman? What have I got in common with a leper? What have I got in common with a person who has needs? I'd rather be alone. I'd rather it's not my personality or whatever it may be. hard to imagine that Jesus would ever say anything because He wouldn't. What's your testimony like? How are you among people? Are you a person who says, Well, you know, I've got what I've got and I'm going to hang around people who are like me. It's not my fault. It's God's. He made me this way. It's my personality. Or are you gracious and welcoming, sociable, people who share in considerateness of others? The Corinthians struggled with their selfish factions they struggled with their clicks, and they were going through the motions of the Lord's Supper. And Paul reminds them of the Lord's instruction, which came directly from Christ. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now, most conservative scholars would say that the book of First Corinthians was written before the Gospels were In other words, they didn't have the Gospels in which to read of the account of what Jesus did. This was direct revelation to Paul. Direct revelation he had heard from God. He received from the Lord and he delivered these instructions to them. Supernatural instruction of what was instituted by the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. And it was during the time of the Passover meal... The Passover meal. And the Passover meal was a memorial. It was a meal instituted in the Old Testament. It was a reminder to the Jews of God's deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. For they had been in bondage hundreds of years. It was in remembrance of the last of the ten plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians. And that plague was what? The death of the firstborn son. In every household, in every household in Egypt. The Israelites, however, they were told, they were told that they were to take a lamb. They were to kill that lamb and take that lamb's blood and they were to spread it on the doorposts of their home and on the lintel above their home. And when God that evening would come, He would see that. And He would not bring death to their firstborn son in that household. And it was a remembrance of their deliverance out of Egypt. And it was much more than that, in fact. It was a foreshadowing of Christ who would come. Who would be that Lamb that would die for your sins and for mine. So that He would see the blood of Christ which was on our hearts to that had been shed in redemption for us. He would see the righteousness of Christ that would cover our sinful heart, giving us salvation if we would pledge our faith and give our lives to Him. It was that in which in their mind's eye for the Jew, the greatest event in all of their history. In fact, they still practice the Passover today. Here Jesus takes some bread During the Passover meal. And He gives thanks. And that word there is Eucharisteo. It is the word from which many take the Lord's Supper and they call it the Eucharist. I have an Episcopalian friend who came to visit it once and she told me it was a nice service. But she has had to have her Eucharist every week. Some churches practice it every week. and They call it the Eucharist. That's where they get it from. Jesus took bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And when it comes to taking and eating of the bread and taking of that juice or that wine and drinking, various individuals have views in which this is seen. There are those who would say that this particular act When you take of the bread and drink of the cup, it literally changes into the blood and the flesh of Jesus Christ as it goes into your mouth. It is called transubstantiation. It is a belief that is held by the Catholic Church that when you eat and when you drink, it is transformed into the literal body and the blood of Christ. But some don't believe in transubstantiation. Some believe that the body and the blood of Christ are what they call in, with, and under the elements that you take. And as you eat of it, the body and the blood of Christ are surrounding it in a mystical sense. And they call it consubstantiation. And that is held by the Lutheran Church. There are those who take that the Body and blood of Christ has its spiritual presence in the elements in some way, some mysterious way that the spiritual presence of God or the Christ is there in the elements held by some Presbyterians and held by some who are followers of Calvin. Each of those three views, views that special grace is given To those who would take of the elements, whether it's transubstantiation by the Catholics, whether it is consubstantiation, whether it is the spiritual presence. Some believe that it is God's special grace, that He especially graces that individual in some way. Then there is a fourth view called the memorial view. This last view sees that these elements... The bread or the cracker, or the juice and the wine are purely symbolic, purely symbolic. And the Lord was using metaphorical language as was common in that day, just as he said in John 6:41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. It is metaphorical in which he speaks. This is the view that was held by the reformer, the Swiss reformer, Ulrich Zwingli. And it's the view that is held by Baptists, those of the Anabaptist tradition. Those who held by the Baptists, the Methodists, the independent Bible churches such as ours, they hold to a memorial view. In other words, this is a symbol. It is a memorial in remembrance of Christ. It doesn't transform into anything. You're blessed perhaps by the remembrance of it, but you're not especially graced in doing it. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. There is a blessing because you're following it in obedience in obedience it is a command that is to be obeyed not simply by the church but by you when I was growing up I remember attending a church they would have separate services they would have different services and at the end when they had communion they had the entire church gather and it would extend the service by uh, 15 minutes or so 20 minutes or however long it took to distribute the elements among hundreds of people And I remember some would, after that time, before the communion, they would decide, well, I'm done with service. I'm just going to go so I can have lunch or go on with my day or whatever. They would skip communion. But this is a command given to us by the Lord Jesus to practice. The text also says, this is my body in the NIV and NAS, which is for you. And that is a more accurate reading than the King James Version, which says, this is my body which is broken for you. He broke the bread, but his body was never broken. As it says in John 19.33, not a bone of him shall be broken. You see, back in the time when you were crucified on the cross, you hung there for days, often before you died. And the way that you would breathe is you would take your legs and you would push your body upwards because the weight of your body held your lungs down and you would push yourself up so you could take a breath. And so the Roman soldiers, when they came around, what they would do if they wanted to hasten the death of somebody hanging on the cross? was they would take a club and they would break the legs of that individual so they could no longer push themselves up. And that individual who was hanging on the cross would die of asphyxiation or suffocation. But Christ, in His death on the cross, when they came, it says in the text that they saw that He had already died. And so they did not break His legs. This is my body which is given for you. For you. The text tells us that Jesus gave His life up for you. For you and you and you. Each individual He died for, sacrificed, purchased your redemption and He saved your soul when you've come to Him. He humbled Himself some 2,000 years ago for your sakes. He died for you. His blood was shed for you. He died in your place so that someday you would not have to die. A spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And the Scriptures tell us you were not redeemed in First Peter. You weren't redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver or precious stones. But you were redeemed with the precious blood. The blood of the Lord Jesus which was given on the cross for you. And it is that memorial that we remember every time we take communion. Every time we take it. It is for you that He died. And it is a serious time of reflection. A solemn time of reverence. A solemn time of gratitude. But they didn't see it that way. They didn't see it that way. They in current saw it as a, perhaps a, a joke. A, a time that they were just going to eat. They despised that time. They perhaps were drunk, it says in the text. Laughing despising that which Christ had done because it meant very little, if anything, in their mind's eye when they did that. So Paul calls them to self-examination. Verse 27. If you drink of the cup and eat of the bread in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty. You'll be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. But examine yourself, it says, and in so doing, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There were many who treated communion very lightly. Obviously, there were those who had food. Obviously, there were those who had drink. There were those who were poor. There was sin both ways, perhaps. Celebrating maybe with a ritualistic type of attitude. But it sickened their hearts. And it's easier to take communion if you've been a Christian for a long time as some type of ritual, some type of treatment, treating it lightly or irreverently. Sometimes some people practice it simply because they don't want to look bad to the person sitting next to them. To all who would do so, there is a warning of judgment, of judgment to them. Whoever eats of the bread, verse 27, drinks of the cup, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It's simply dishonoring. It is simply disrespectful. Just as you would disrespect if somebody were to stomp on the flag of our country or burn it. It's shameful. Or if somebody were to graffiti a a gravesite or to do something at somebody's memorial, we show respect to the family of the deceased by taking a moment of silence. And so when some comes and they have some type of attitude that downplays the time of communion, it brings shame and guilt, not only to themselves, but they mock God. And they scorn that which was given for them, the blood of Christ, by their attitude and their attitude of disrespect. So Paul calls them to self-examination and confession of sin. And he says, some of them, verse 30, were sick and weak among them, and a number sleep. For the consequences of such a judgment was what? Physical illness for some. And the word sleep was a euphemism for death. It was a euphemism for death. And the warning here is, don't be surprised. If someone, has, if someone has some type of attitude in which they downplay, they show God disrespect for the giving of His Son, that there is sickness or God takes the life of that person. That's how serious it is and that's why. That's why we say, if you're not sure, if you know the Lord Jesus or you have sin in your heart, don't take communion. Pass it along to the person next to you. That's why we don't have a rule, for instance, here at this church regarding how old an individual must be. But it certainly wouldn't be wise for a parent to make their children take communion if, number one, you're not sure if they're saved. Or, number two, don't give it to them unless they understand what they're doing. Don't give it to them as, oh, this is kind of a cute thing that we should give this to them so that they'll know or whatever it might be. Don't think that it's going to be some sort of blessing upon them if they don't know the Lord or you're not sure where they're at or they're not walking with God. Don't take communion. If they do, don't be surprised if there is some type of illness. For it says very blatantly here, this is what happened to the Corinthian church. Don't be surprised if somehow there is something that might be seriously wrong later on. It's a form of God's discipline. It's a form of God's discipline. For it says in verse 32, When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. When we're disciplined by God, it is out of God's divine mercy that He may even take a Christian's life in order that they might not, what, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Now, a true believer, a true believer never loses their salvation. But a true believer can certainly have their health and can certainly have their very life taken away from them. And the very thought that is here in this text is that God, God considers your salvation so precious and so secure in the hand of Christ That He will even take a believer's physical life in order to save their soul. That He will secure your salvation so much so to take your life and secure your soul so that it says you will not be condemned with the rest of the world. So the solution is, judge yourselves rightly. Judge yourselves rightly when you come before the Lord's table. And confession of sin. And if you're not walking with God, then don't take it. Pass it along to the person next to you. And confess your sin before God. That is why we have a time of silent prayer. That is why that time of silent prayer is for the confession of sin. For self-examination. For confession of things that we have committed as well as omitted. And that is why it is so very important to come before the Lord. As it says in Psalm 24, what it says, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to an idol or swear by a false god. So not only was there to be self-examination, he tells them, have self-control. For in that time, they were selfishly eating without waiting for another. Don't come together for judgment. Don't come together in irreverence. Don't come together in indifference. Or don't come together with disrespect. So when we celebrate the Lord's table, we do it in obedience. It is a time of joy. But it's a time of self-examination, a time of remembrance, a time that we treat the elements that are passed and given with respect because of what it represents. And we come to the foot of the cross. We come in remembrance of all God has done for us in the giving of His Son so that we might be saved. It is simply in humility, knowing that we are unworthy to come, but we have been invited to the Lord's table. Yesterday I saw, it was in the news, Arlington National Cemetery, there were 24,000 wreaths that were laid at each of the headstones that were there. All of these volunteers had come to lay a wreath at each one. There's an article written in USA Today a number of years ago entitled, Gifts of Wreaths Touches a Nation, and it reads, Every December since 1992... Morrill Worcester, owner of one of the largest holiday wreath companies, has taken time in the midst of the busiest season to haul a truckload of wreaths to Arlington National Cemetery. Morrill and his band of volunteers spend a day laying wreaths on the graves of over 5,000 soldiers as part of the Wreaths Across America program. Worcester, 56, started the program When one of his warehouses called to report an overproduction of several thousand wreaths, he said, well, I'm not going to throw away, I'm not going to throw them away. That's when I thought of Arlington. He called Washington and asked for permission to lay the wreaths. To his surprise, he got it. Quote, when people hear about what we're doing, they want to know if I'm a veteran, unquote, Morrill said on the Wreaths Across America website. I'm not, but I make it my business never to forget. His wife Karen agrees. We want to honor the veterans. We do it with the production, with the products we've made ourselves. We're like the little drummer boy. He had his drum, we have our wreaths. For Moral and Karen, the program is a way to give back. Christmas wreaths made them rich. Through wreaths across America, they feel they are reclaiming the true meaning of a wreath. Showing it as something more than a glitzy holiday ornament, we wanted to get back to the simple idea of what a wreath represents. Respect, honor, and victory. Just as wreaths help us remember those who died to protect our freedom, so the bread and the cup... Of communion, help us remember him who died so that we might live. Unquote. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, by your command you have instructed us, O Lord, to remember that which you have done. Even in this time of celebration, O God, it is a celebration of your Son's birth. And so, Father, each and every time that we take that memorial, that cup, that bread, we reflect, O God, on the body which was beaten, the life that was lived and sacrificed, the blood which was shed in pain, bearing the Sins of the world, that we, O Father, might treasure in worship of you. For we were redeemed not with gold or silver or precious stones, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. And I pray, O Father, may you cause us ever to remember, ever to be grateful. For your sacrifice. In Jesus precious name. Amen.